You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience member and artist designed to demystify the classical music and opera experience. If you enjoy the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, and really, who wouldn't, please consider supporting it for as little as $2 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good to pledge your support. Quick and dirty, late and slapdash. That's what this podcast episode with jazz musician and composer Ron Davis is. It's also an extended excursion around the life of Glenn Gould, the music of Brahms, Bach, and right at the end, a bit of an ego massage for me. But then, hey, some people will tell you all of this podcasting malarkey is nothing short of an ego massage. Whatever. The point is, this conversation captured on the currently less than satisfactory remote recording software I'm paying for is exactly the kind of extended immersion opportunity I now find eight weeks into lockdown I'm missing terribly. And I think it's going to continue like that for a considerable time yet, especially in the arts world. My workload has disappointingly made less time available for self-commissioned podcast endeavours like this. It's meant missed deadlines for the PRs whose offers I still appreciate receiving. But listening back to such conversations with a considerable distance makes it not unlike flicking through an old photo album or scrapbook. It was Ron's Brahms for JB, a jazz reworking of the third movement of Brahms' third symphony, a track I consistently misreference in this interview, by way of a caveat, that hooked me into the pitch for the podcast in the first place. Here was a beautiful melody, familiar in my musical development and a good illustration of Brahms' mastery as a crafter of melody and symphonic writing that when treated differently, perhaps given a makeover with a new typeface or a different palette, catapulted me into an entirely different space. With so much of the music that I've been introduced to through this series, it is the energy and insight that others share about the music that they connect with on an emotional level that helps stimulate my own curiosity. It is the music of others that prompts an increased sense of awareness. It is through bringing awareness of the self to the listening experience that we arrive at a deeper understanding of ourselves and perhaps the sounds that started the process off in the first place. Music, then, should pose questions. It isn't, as composer Thomas Hewitt-Jones reminded me in an interview last weekend, music is not an end product. Music involves the individual. It is part of a development, and it is right that we bring ourselves to the listening experience and to our discussions about it. Not everyone agrees. Some in the promotion business I know regard the inclusion of the self, the personalisation of a musical experience, as somehow sullying that musical product. The irony is 
We wouldn't worry about discussing our personal response to a film, yet somehow music is different. Music for a lot of people can only ever and should only ever be in the background. Reflect in your own time just how much of life they're missing out on. What does Toronto make of Glenn Gould? What, how does Toronto talk about Glenn Gould? Um, l- less than uh, a lot. Uh, there, there are uh, plaques and uh, even a sculpture uh, and a theatre memorialising and honouring Glenn Gould. Um, but um, when you travel throughout the world, and you uh, come across uh, memorializations of, of national heroes, especially arts heroes. You know, think of Sibelius in Finland or anyone in Moscow. Um, uh, we don't honor, neither uh, Toronto nor Canada honors Glenn Gould to that extent. It, it gets back to that modesty bit. And I might add that I was the secretary of the Glenn Gould Foundation for several years and also co-produced a, an event marking the um, 50th anniversary of, sorry, the 30th anniversary of Glenn Gould's passing and the 80th anniversary of his death in 2012 called the Glenn Gould Variations. And um, even though when we produced it, we had, we had artists from all over the world come to Toronto for free to, without being paid, to uh, participate in this commemoration of Glenn Gould for 19 minutes. And we chose that number because it's half the length of the Goldberg Variations, uh, the first version by Glenn Gould. Um, so you know, Lang Lang came and, and um, uh, Marie Schwinard, the great dancer came. And of course I'm blanking on the other names. People from all <laughs> Isn't the it, world. It's always the way. It's always the way when you start listening always to the Always the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the way, but uh, we had the celebration, an international celebration, but locally it attracted relatively little attention. So it's very Toronto. Attitude. Is that is that because because audience interests have changed now and that people are not drawn to classical music, or is it that 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 there's no sort of local connection to him? I think I think uh, it might be a bit of both. But that said, um, the current of uh, interest and current of ongoing. A, a discourse about Glenn Gould and his work is still strong enough here to support a greater level of interest than I think one would find for any other uh, classical artist of the past. Uh, so, um, and and um, so, for example, uh, there's more interest in Glenn Gould than the, if if I picked some other celebrated Canadian names. Um, there's more sustained interest in Glenn Gould than uh, if I pick some other 
Canadian classical names and there would be in Maureen Forrester or John Vickers uh, and maybe even to some extent with the greatest of respect to some living uh, performers like Louis Lorty or um, uh, uh, Monsieur Nézé Séguin who's in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, so it's, 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 it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of, of the uh, engagement with Glenn Gould. Uh, but generally Canadians, and huge generalization, we sometimes don't engage with our heroes as often as we, as we should. And as, as, one, as one American once said to, to a senior official from the UK, when the UK official asked about including the Canadians in some uh, initiative, the Americans said, well, the Canadians are just happy to be in the room. <laughs> I don't know. I'm uh, sort of not embarrassed to say, but I don't. I don't feel as though I know enough about Glenn Gould to have an opinion other than recordings that I've listened to, where I've heard him uh, humming along to <laughs> what he's playing. And and I and of those recordings that I've heard, I am caught between thinking this is absolutely amazing and also this is really really infuriating that is i'm i'm ashamed to say that is that is all i know so can you tell me what what draws you to glenn gould oh i'm i'm i'd be happy to and and first of all um i should say ha have no shame whatsoever uh glenn gould was um in 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 the promotion of his career was was quite modest and um uh, left uh, much of his work for others to discover. So it's not as if you would be beset by an onslaught of information or leads to examine uh, the uh, various kind of aspects of his work that uh, would, you know, would rid you of your shame. Um, and, and it, but, um, and, and by the way, I've always found I have not to generalize and certainly not to characterize you in with any generalities, but uh, the English above all compared to other at least Western, well, actually international countries, but the English uh, above all I found have had the most challenging relation with 
with Glenn Gould for the very reasons that you articulate, uh, both infuriating and inspiring at the same time. Um, <laughs> okay, that makes me feel and, better. Feel, it makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> oh, you know, you, you can just read so, some of uh, Norman Lebrecht's or some of the old... Uh, some who? Of the old, or older critics on him. <laughs> I'm sure I don't yeah. know who yeah. you're talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, oh so yeah, I'm sure you. I'm, I'm sure, sure I don't don't. know who you're talking about. I, it's, I'll send you an email with the spelling of that name. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it begins with an L. Possibly, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the the reason the reason there's such a level and 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 a sustained and I should mention I should say a lifelong um, engagement for me with Glenn Gould is because uh, he turned music on its head. Actually, uh, John, he did to music exactly what I think you're exploring and what I believe in. Uh, and that is, it's, it's, it's not that he was a pianist. Uh, as he used to say himself, uh, I, Glenn Gould, am a, a writer, broadcaster, thinker, uh, musicologist who happens to play a bit of piano. Was that how he built himself? He didn't, he didn't build himself as a pianist first. Absolutely not. In fact, although he died at the at the uh, tragically premature age of 50 years, he was about to give up piano and do other things. But even by then, he had done so much more, uh, John, and I'm, I'm going to practice maximum restraint so I can distill the wonder for me of Glenn Gould uh, for you and for your listeners so that I might inspire you just to go um, uh, look at other aspects of his work. Glenn Gould did more broadcasting, both radio and television broadcasting, and more writing than he did actual recording of music, as much music as he did record. And it's in his thinking that Glenn Gould becomes such a, such a marvel. Um, and he really was, in my view, one of the great thinkers in music. And, you know, some of the names that come up, you know, Richard... Richard Good comes up, or some of the musicologists, you know, of the past, say Toynbee, or or of the modern age, like Alex Ross, um, wonderful writers, wonderful thinkers. But what Glenn Gould is writing about in the '60s, and you have only to read a book that was edited by the great uh, classical music critic Tim Page, uh, who I have the privilege of knowing, called the Glenn Gould Reader, and it's an assembly, uh, or it's an assemblage of. Glenn Gould's articles on classical music, and they, they're all over the place. Yeah, he has one article called The Prospect of Recording, and it, it has a certain celebrity, this, this article, because it's the one where he talks about audiences being evil <laughs> and why he gave up. Glenn Gould gave up concert performance in 1963. He could have made a fortune performing. He was offered a million dollars, I think, in the 60s or 70s, rather, to perform one concert, uh, but he gave it all up and because he thought that the future of music uh, had lay in technology. And in the 60s, John, the 1960s, Glenn Gould was forcing what we have today in music, which is the technologization of music, even classical, and the fact that recording is very different from performance. So the notion that some classical musicians, but I don't think the younger ones do, still harbor of a, a studio performance should be a recapturing of a concert performance. Um, 
Glenn Gould shot that down as being entirely untrue and took that a step further and, and advocated what in the 60s he called the, the box set or the kit where every listener would receive just all the takes, the different takes and the different uh, portions of takes of a classical work, say the, the Goldberg variations, and then assemble them themselves because they could do that uh, at home. And because the audience was now in control of the sound, not the not the musician, because the audience had had the dials the, at the time to control volumes and treble and bass. And Glenn Gould was writing about this in the 60s when all of this technology we have now wasn't um, uh, available. But at the same time, he wrote an article on Petula Clark and why he loved Petula Clark, assuming your listeners know who Petula Clark is, a pop singer, English pop singer of the 60s and 70s, English and French pop singer, and, and did a musicological, and musicological analysis of why her, her pop hit Downtown was such a brilliant uh, exploration of harmonies. And how was how Glenn was Gould that? Did all of it. How was that writing received at the time? Did did people make the assumption that he was being ironic? Or, or <laughs> I mean, not not that I, I think it deserves musicological study. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just wondering how that was received. Did he was he sort of derided? Well, it was received with a, a mixture of reactions. And by the way, parenthetically, there is a he, he converted the article into a um, into a radio documentary that is uh, that is on online. You could find it at YouTube, and it's even funnier when he's speaking it because you hear examples of the music. So it, it was received. I think a a, um, a good deal of the reception was with the. Um, um, good-natured eye roll of, oh, there's Glenn Gould again, what a genius. But part of it was, um, remember, this is a, he did this in the late 60s or early 70s when there was still a, a uh, hard divide, a caste system divide between classical music and other music, uh, classical and jazz, classical and pop. And so for in the classical world, for a an admittedly genius but eccentric classical musician to do a, an analysis and a celebration of of of, of, uh, of um, um, now I've forgotten her name. Petula Clark. <laughs> Petula Clark. <laughs> Petula Clark. Thank you. Uh, Petula Clark was greeted with you know either a bit of sniffery you know oh he you know Glenn Gould is slumming and looking for publicity or complete incomprehension. And by the way, he did the same thing with Barbara Streisand. But Barbara Streisand at least did a re record of classical music, so it was a little it was received with a little more respect. <laughs> uh, you have the the thing that I'm asking people at the moment is is the music they're listening to during this rather bizarre period of time. And I've noticed that over the past month my what I draw from music has changed quite quite a lot over the past few weeks. Um, you've selected three tracks, one of which is some Brahms by, uh, played by Glenn Gould. Well, just tell me about that. Um, with pleasure. Um, in the first place, um, if I were asked uh, uh, 
Uh, I mean, you're a cruel man, John, because you only gave me three choices. Yeah, that's because I haven't got very much editing time, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's that. Um, You know, I was going to say on Desert Island Discs, there there are a few more choices. But if I I were uh, uh, banished to the Desert Island, and if I were only given three choices, um, Glenn Gould would figure uh, 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 amongst them. And uh, most people know Glenn Gould for his for his Bach, which um, I, I think that's the area that attracts least dispute for the genius and w- real wonder in in the in the in um, in the greatest sense of wonder of his playing. But um, this, uh, in the uh, not long after Glenn Gould recorded the famous. Um, uh, Glenn uh, Goldberg variations in the 50s, the first version, uh, he recorded this album of Brahms' l- later pieces, the Opus 117, 18, and 19 uh, piano pieces, uh, or selections from, from, from those works. And, and I've always found them to be a great balm um, in, in unhappier times and a great inspiration and a great sense of a great source of joy in 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 other times and so um i chose this one piece by glenn gould from this one record by glenn gould uh partly to highlight just how glenn gould dealt with other music and he always did things differently john your exasperation with glenn gould and others exasperation with glenn gould is well placed because glenn gould actually he did an interview with humphrey littleton speaking of BBC broadcasters mm-hmm. of the past, uh, where Littleton basically said, why do you do this? Why do you play everything so differently? And Gould's answer, this is the 50s or the 60s, was, was well, we don't really need another standard um, version of, 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 uh, of a Mozart sonata or of Brahms. And this version of the Brahms piece I chose illustrates that it's not quite the same as, as many other great piano players' versions, but it it imparts such a sense of depth, you know. And you know, the the philosopher Wittgenstein said that that the word profound, when we use it, means a sense of there being something else. And when you listen to Glenn Gould play the short piece so beautifully and slowly, and every note and every every uh, uh, voice in the piano writing articulated in a way that some might find exaggerated there's a deep sense of something else so in times like these this to me is a perfect piece The other thing that I want to... I now realise the connection. It's taken me 20 minutes of talking to you that, and now I realise the connection. That uh, the thing that triggered me to speak to you was when I was invited to listen to Brahms to JB, wasn't it? Was it called Brahms to JB? Yes, Brahms for JB. 
So when I listened to that for the first time, I was thinking, uh, I'm, I'm for, uh, and here is my spritzer. Um, uh, I, I do some work for a, uh, for Jazz FM in in the UK, and um, I, as a result of doing that work, I'm now listening to a good deal more jazz, and I'm, uh, and it's almost like discovering classical music all over again. And I listened to Brahms, Brahms to JB, and I really didn't have any idea what I was going to hear. Uh, there was a, there was a point in the track where I went, oh my god, I know that this is brilliant, um, and uh, that's all I really want to say about it. Can you just tell me about about that track? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, you know, I I I, uh, I did my reading up before we spoke, and I I remember you mentioning in 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 one of your blogs about your discovery of classical music, or it might have been on one of your original classical music podcasts about your discovery of classical music and also mentioning how you were in jazz club and and hearing jazz. And um, I say that in response to your question because um, what what Brahms for JB, or as I like to call it simply Brahms, uh, is, is, uh, reflects is um, the, uh, if I can call it the, the catholicity of music, the music without the, the 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 fact that music is really without borders, and um, the reason I thought, I hoped, and I now hope, or I hope that we would, and now I hope that we are getting along, um, uh, is is because you and in, in some of your writings and some of your podcasts reflect that uh, your openness uh, to music, and so what Brahms represents. Uh, it, at the, uh, the my track Brahms for JB represents and and uh, you're referring of course to the the video that's on my YouTube channel, um, but it's also a track on my on, on the upcoming disc, uh, or uh, is 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 the fact that uh, at a micro at, at the microcosmic level, um, I was classically trained. I don't play classical anymore. I I listen to classical almost exclusively um, and and uh, in that training and in that listening uh, Brahms in general and the third movement the Allegretto movement of Brahms third symphony in particular are deeply deeply moving and and I've been listening to that music for decades and every time I put it on it's new and it's moving um, which is what music should do and is which is what I uh, uh, seek in, in my own music that that if and when you do me the honor of listening to my music, not only today but ten years from today, it will have an effect on you. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm a jazz player because I'm a nonlinear thinker and I can't stick to the score. And also, I'm I live in uh, the 21st century, in the third decade of the 21st century. Um, over 120 years since Brahms passed away. So there's something to uh, giving a, a context that I live in to the music. And so um, I took the third movement of Brahms symphony. I kept much of the melody and altered it a bit. I worked with a brilliant Toronto, Portuguese, Toronto, Canadian, composer and, and, and instrumentalist Louis Samao who arranged the Brahms and so we added a, a, a rhythms to the music, we added 
music to the music and we added sections for improvisation to the music and an entirely different instrumentation and shape to the music to give the product that you hear um, uh, both on the video and on the record and the fact that it that it's it, uh, stimulator that brought it provoked that response in you is is exactly what I was aiming for because I'm sure you John have heard Brahms third symphony before and so when you heard this track it was something familiar but something new so it's neither old wine and new bottles or new wine and old bottles it's old wine and old bottles and new wine and new bottles. Uh, it's interesting you uh, hearing you uh, explain that I uh, recently spoke to um this always happens when one is trying to as we noticed earlier on when one is trying to recall a name suddenly it goes but he was an arranger bob chilcott that's it bob chilcott arranged um the second movement of the second piano concerto by rachmaninoff just for voices and he didn't put any words with it at all and i interviewed him and he said to me that i I deliberately didn't select any words because it would be it's such a famous tune it's so it would be such a thorny choice there would be somebody who wouldn't be wouldn't be very happy with the choice and they'd rip it to shreds he didn't use rip it to shreds but um and and i explained to him during the conversation that when i when i heard that arrangement for the first time it was as though he had lit a pilot light you know in one of those old gas boilers like oh my god oh i never imagined that i needed to hear this but actually i need to hear it and and i i'm wondering what that is it it's not and i don't expl- i don't ask that in order to um to overly flatter you but there's a sort of a that that like you say the old wine in old bottles and new wine in new bottles is a is a it, there's there's joy attached to that and i'm trying to understand what that joy is because it's not necessarily recollecting old memories it's i don't know i i'm i'm looking to you to explain it can you explain it well i don't know if i can but um it is it is is actually you're touching on a subject that to me is of uh, major fascination. I think it is of um, great moment in the zeitgeist, uh, and I also think it's a bit fraught. So, to, so what we see, so whether it's it's the Rachmaninoff second by uh, in that arrangement, or what I've done with Brahms, or now we see Vikingur Olafsson doing uh, rearrangements of of uh, Bach. Um, or Max Richter and Vivaldi, um, there is a, and, and there's some Beethoven um, reworking, if I can call it, going on. So there's something in the zeitgeist, uh, either in classical music or uh, uh, connected to classical music, where um, musicians are uh, looking to uh, the war horses, as you quite rightly call them, to the pieces that have been uh, performed for uh, a century or more and that are well known and uh, trying to or, or looking to or thinking about reinventing them through either reinstrumentation or through uh, use of electronics. Uh, Gabriel Prokofiev is another one who does this. Um, and uh, um, the reason I say it's, it's of interest and it's fraught is because on the one hand, I think uh, it represents a what I was saying about kind of new wine and new bottles you know we're living in 2020 and we want to make music for 2020 and um there's a sense that on the one hand i may not have anything to say about that brahms sonata or about that rachmaninoff concerto that already wasn't said by sviatoslav richter 
or or that might be said so brilliantly today by Daniil Trifonov or Yu Jia Wang, uh, never mind by Rachmaninoff himself who recorded it. Um, but yet I want to do something with this music and so how do I approach it? So that's at the positive side, but also I think there's an element of panic in the classical music. It's like, ah, you know, classical music is losing its funding, the audiences are aging, the young, you know, the young generation isn't listening, we have to do something to bring in the kids. So what are the kids listening to? They're listening to rap. So let's do rap with, you know, um, with Rachmaninoff. Um, so I think both of those are going on and at, at its best, it can be wonderful. So I love what Viking Gorolovsan has done with Bach. And I think it's, it's wonderful that Deutsche Grammophon is promoting his work, but there are other instances that I won't name where I, I think it is about panic and it's not succeeding and it won't contribute to any perceived decline in classical music. Uh, I think it might add to it, but you know, just, on that word decline, which we hear sometimes, you know, everything is cyclical. And I, I believe classical music like jazz, you know, they might be going through a quieter phase now, but they, they, they will, they shall be rediscovered. Um, I'm conscious of time and there are two other things on the list. That's not to say that your, that your storytelling is, is too long at all. Uh, that's the joy of these <laughs> interviews because actually, as I was explaining to a radio producer friend of mine, one doesn't have to do very much research in order to get people to, to, to talk passionately about their subject. And that really is the bottom line for me. Um, the, I did listen to of your three choices. The one I want to go to next was um, I'm On My Way. I'm on my way to Canaan I'm on my way to Canaan I'm on my way to the Canaan Possibly pushed me nearly to the edge of. Um, I wanted to. I wanted to bite my own arm off. Actually, I have to. I have to say, and that's not. It's not an insult. It's not. It, it sounds like an insult. It really isn't. It, I found it fascinating, and quite intense. That's what I mean by wanting to bite my own arm off. Because there were there were points where I was thinking it's pushing me. It's pushing me now. Uh, there's a there's a swingle singers feel, feel to. Um, to the track which i found quite surprising how did you come by this when did you first hear it uh, if i may john i would love to hear um and and 
I welcome for my own music and others and for my tastes, I welcome criticism, accolades, of course, but criticism of all, uh, of all kinds. I always say anybody can tell me that they love my music, but I, what I really want to hear, my friends will tell me what they didn't like. I'd be curious what might have either rubbed you the wrong way or caused a arm biting off impulse in you. Uh, it's not... It's not that I found it would be very easy to interpret that as me saying, "Oh, I found it really annoying." That's not really what I meant. It's a bit, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like listening to. Again, it's happened again. I now can't, I, I want to think of a work by Schoenberg that's. Um, oh, like a twelfth, yes, music, yeah, which which I would, yeah. yeah, it's that sort of weird thing of I get it, I get it, but actually. Actually, I've got too much of it now. Um, that's that's what um, that's what I mean. So it's not that I didn't like it. It's just that it had that effect of same thing happened at what I'm about to tell you. You'll have no idea about. But I went to a uh, I went to a sort of a, a DJ set at um, at King's Place. Manchester Collective gave uh, gave a a concert at King's Place, and they had a, a DJ composer just come on and create this freeform work which was phenomenally loud and uh you wouldn't think it was necessarily something that I would seek out but I found it uh, I found it quite quite interesting because it was it was about a sense of space and it was about a sense of theater um and and I I found that quite in- gauging but at the same time because of its loudness and because of its because of the textures and the way uh, the direction that the dj was going there were times where i was thinking i'm going to scream soon (laughs) not that not because i wanted to not because i wanted to stop but because actually there is something about what you're doing that is that is pushing a variety of different buttons at the moment and if i'm not careful something is going to happen and it's not going to be pleasant <laughs> that that's that's really what i mean and that's not a bad thing even though so so we don't need to alert the authorities john no no everything's fine really we no, nobody needs to worry <laughs> at all it's fine i can't tell you how gratified i am for your sharing that explanation uh at at at, at a uh, kind of macro level at a high level because it helps me understand why my passion for the group Take Six, who uh, recorded uh, and arranged the the I'm on my way um, track we're discussing, uh, why my passion is 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 not universally shared, um, <laughs> quite legitimately. Quite, you, quite you mean legitimately. you mean there but, are other people who have responded in a similar way? Is that what you're saying? Well, yes and no. I mean, they've responded by uh, by um, uh, with their feet, so to speak. Um, uh, you know, if um, you know, there are artists if they do a concert in a three thousand uh, seat hall, will fill the hall, and take six uh, are not those artists. But on the other hand, uh, I know that they're the musicians' musicians because uh, of the people who hire them or who present them or who are fans. And, and it may be that there's with Take Six, there's just what I, as I like to call it, there's too much, too much, and not enough, not enough. In other words, it's so dense and it's so packed that um, for many listeners, there's just not that space to take in what they're doing. It didn't settle um, as well. That was the other thing. Not that, not that I need music to settle, 
but it was so intricate, it was so rich <laughs> that it was like, okay, I get it. I get the point you're making. Now can we just sit in this lay-by? Can we just park up, have a sandwich, and then we'll take off again? That that's <laughs> that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So so the punchline to all this is I actually I had other tracks uh, chosen of theirs, and I said I said no that might be too much that that too much, and so I chose the one I chose uh, from a twenty year old record ah. Thirty or almost thirty-year-old recording, because I thought, well, this is at the milder end. So um, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad I went in that direction. But I have to tell you, and this is going to tie into my third choice. They had mentioned um, the reason I chose that track, and I completely understand what you're saying, is that um, uh, the artists take six, and so just to give context, we're talking about an old gospel tune, um, I'm Going Home, that takes six, who are um, slotted usually as a gospel group because they are Seventh-day Adventists and quite strong in their Christianity without without hitting you over the head. I mean, they, they perform in secular venues, but um, they are they are deeply religious and uh, believers who take uh, 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 gospel tunes, but they also take popular music tunes and and j many jazz tunes and perform them in a highly harmonized you refer to the swingle singers and so these this is kind of swingle singers not 2.0 but 9.0 um because it's all well many of the recordings are a cappella uh, and it's a sextet so there's six voices and they arranged with extremely dense harmonies and sophisticated harmonies, but always coming mostly from a, uh, believe it or not, a more popular sentiment, uh, not a highly theoretical like Arnold Schoenberg um, uh, background. I mean, some of them are trained, have uh, degrees in jazz, uh, but um, not all of them do. They also started just a bunch of guys who were singing together and they met in Alabama. Um, but uh, the reason I chose um, th that one track is uh, is I'm going home. It starts relatively quietly. I should think that the first you know 20 30 seconds are you know aren't too much, and then it builds up into what you, as you describe an intricate and dense um, uh, 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 dense and densely moving piece of harmony and and melody with with uh, some interesting uh, um, kind of uh, discordant uh, sounding notes um, but uh, what I hear uh, and maybe this is you know someone who has too much training or is too heady in his listening what I hear and I, I'm not exaggerating I hear the reincarnation of J.S. Bach no I'm not a super spiritual person I don't believe in re reincarnation but if I did believe in reincarnation I would honestly say my first stop in the in the uh, train stations of, or in the train tracks of reincarnation would be at take six because I believe these six men from Alabama do uh, carry on the spirit of what Johann Sebastian Bach did and that is taking uh, re religious music taking a spirit of a believer's spirit or believe a believer's um, uh, passion in 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 this in the religious world, 
channel it into the music, not using any new techniques because nothing Take Six does is, is a, a new invention, but um, taking existing techniques and, and uh, bringing them and exploiting them to their maximum to create sounds that have never been heard and that are at the, on the one hand of such virtuosity that it is almost unimaginable, but at the same time for me, of such depth and, and lifelong uh, musical inspiration that uh, they, they, they are from a different universe. So I believe they do that and, and uh, I'm going home is, is but a small um, uh, example of that. There, there are many others that are more intense. Uh, but that's exactly what Bach does in his music. So uh, that's very interesting. I hadn't. Um, I uh, well, you pitched it very well, and I'm sold. Uh, I'm sold on it. I will <laughs> when 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 we finish talking, I will go back and listen with new ears. Um, the other thing that really surprised me was, and I'm terribly sorry that my pronunciation is is awful. Um, the Suzuki version of Matthew Passion. Um, I feel as though I listen to Matthew Passion a lot, and I feel as though I, I it's in danger of me not listening because I hear it a lot. I'm in danger of not listening very attentively to it. But this was quite remarkable. The um, the and this is where I can't pronounce part one number six, Bus and Roy. I can't pronounce that. Yeah, what Bush is and Roy. is that right? Yeah. Uh, that was where I suddenly realised that actually, um. That's when I was swinging. That's when I was into it. That's when I was moved. That's not to say that the rest of it isn't moving. It is. It is crushingly. It can't be crushing and moving at the same time. But, but it was. It's a deeply affecting work anyway. Uh, but this was. There had great life in it. Great, great zest and, and the orchestration was was really stunning. I was quite moved by it. company on the on the I'm um, I'm coming home and and we we join company on the bus in Roy and and also the Saint Matthew Passion of Suzuki um, I, I I just think the whole record it's and and it's as you mentioned it's it's a new record I I, I think it's the third recording 
it's at least a second that Suzuki has done of the work. And I should mention that I had a real privilege. You know, you had Elisa Citadio on your podcast, uh, the music director of Tafel Music, uh, which lives and plays just down the road from me, uh, about a mile down the road from me. And I had the good fortune of seeing Maestro Suzuki uh, rehearse the St. Matthew Passion last year with Tafel Music. And, and uh, that, that was an inspiration. And then this record came out, this recording came out recently. And um, it, to me, as you say, the rhythms and, and the orchestral conducting and the solo performances. And, and to me, there's, there's not only a connection with this new, new record, but my relation um, with um, the St. Matthew Passion goes back um, almost 50 years to a, a statement that, uh, or an analysis that uh, the late great Sir Yehudi Menuhin offered on a uh, documentary series he did on classical music. And I was, I was just, you know, in my early days of studying music and learning and, and getting to know um, uh, what was out there. And I remember hearing Sir Yehudi say that St. Matthew's Passion by Bach is, in his opinion, the greatest work of music uh, of Western classical music and the greatest piece of Western music existing. And my reaction was, oh, go on, you know, how can anybody say that? That's ridiculous. You were young, and I had, I you were really young, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I was young and foolish. Uh, now I'm just old and foolish. Um, and, uh, but it's turned out to be something that stayed with me. And, and you know, like you, I've heard it so often, but you know, John, I bet you, or I won't bet, but I, I suspect that, that like me, you have, there are people in your life who you may only see once every few months or once a year or once every few years, and yet you remain deep friends. And every time you do connect, um, that old depth is still there and never goes away, even though it's not marked by any frequency. And that's how I am with the St. Matthew Passion. I may only listen to it in whole a few times a year, but every time I do listen to it, it's it, it nothing runs deeper and Sir Yehudi's words ring in my ear. And um, this, this, I mean, I picked this record recording by Suzuki, but there's so many other, I went, I actually spent, you know, over an hour going through different versions and, and oh I had God. at least you, you, pre you prepared a whole lot more, <laughs> you prepared a whole lot more for this podcast than I did. I have to say, I'm terribly sorry about that. Oh yeah. <laughs> wow. No, no, Someone I, wants I to make a really good impression. <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's an honor and privilege and I love what you're doing, John. I mean, I think I, the fact that you're a life coach and a blogger and you do a classical music podcast and you've done it in a sustained way for so long. I mean, um, it's, <laughs> oh, that's it, very it kind of you to say. to you. That's very, that's very, that's very well, kind it's of true. you to say. You know, the, the truth is, John, I think I could speak for every one of the musicians that you've spoken to. Uh, and if they don't think this, uh, 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 if they don't think this expressly, I think they might connect with the sentiment. There, there are many of us. There are plenty of musicians. There aren't many of you. And we could make all the music we want, but with you know, with, without the John Jacobs of the world putting putting this out to the public, our music remains bottled up. So I take my hat off to you and thank you. 
Well, that's very, that's, that, you, well, you, oh, I'm, I'm very close to crying. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> uh, that's very nice of you to say. Uh,